when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's bungled ministerial reshuffle and how the Conservatives have learned to love the environment again. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, political commentator, Philip Stevens, political correspondent, Laura Hughes, and Laura Round from the think tank, Bright Blue. Thank you all for coming. If you enjoy this podcast, why not subscribe on your mobile device? You can receive it straight to your phone every Saturday morning. Theresa May made a power play this week and failed. After weeks of plotting and briefing, the Prime Minister held a reshuffle of her ministers on Monday and Tuesday. It did not go very well. Jeremy Hunt refused to move on from the health brief and ended up leaving Downing Street with a wider portfolio than the one he went in with. Greg Clark, Andrea Leadsom and Chris Grilling all remained in situ despite Number 10's desire to move them on. And Justine Greening refused a move from education to work and pensions, abruptly exiting the government. Far from showing Theresa May's strength, the reshuffle revealed her weakness. So George Parker, it was quite extraordinary reshuffle. We've talked about this for weeks on successive podcast <laughs> episodes about who was going to survive, who was not going to survive. And generally, it was a big load of nothing. Yes, it was a, It was certainly a reshuffle of two halves, wasn't it? The first day was a, a total disaster. As you say, she was. Uh, she came back from her Christmas break with a bit of authority in the bank after concluding that phase one Brexit deal and seemed in danger of squandering most of it within minutes of the reshuffle starting when the Conservative Party, of course, tweeted out the wrong name of the uh, new party chairman and it degenerated from there. I thought the second day of the reshuffle where she brought on some of the talent from the 2015 intake was a bit more promising for the government, but that's frankly more of a medium-term uh, solution for the government bringing people through in terms of the cabinet itself barely changed looks exactly the same chairman people were sort of saying what earth is going on here and it's hard to know was it an instant backlash they changed their mind or was it just a pure communications error and they'd been told the wrong name because i've heard mixed reports on this this week yeah there are different reports i mean if you're one of the aims of your reshuffle is to present a more modern diverse face of the conservative party the idea that chris grayling's a 55 year old balding white man who doesn't even have a twitter account is the 16 one, is, followers on Facebook. And 16 though. followers on Facebook is the solution. How that ever got anywhere near a decision is hard to fathom. You're right, there are different accounts of whether his name was really circulating in the final moments of this ahead of this reshuffle and Theresa May suddenly got cold feet. I'm told that wasn't the case, but his name certainly was circulating earlier on in the process. And I think in the end, they went for rather a sensible double act of Brandon Lewis, who's got that sort of populist common touch, and James Cleverly, who's black MP, a bit of a military background, and someone who is a very good media communicator. So I think that actually was one of the bright spots of the first day of the, the reshuffle. It got the central office regime right. But it was in other ranks of the cabinet, I think, where there was a lot of disappointment. And they also brought in 13 new vice chair, which created a big wide spectrum of people they can essentially put up on television. It seemed <laughs> to be the main um, thrust behind that. But you're right, when you look at it, it does look like a refreshed, better team that at least has some energy to it because Sir Patrick McLaughlin, who was the old party chairman, was somewhat lethargic in the role. But, see, I would argue that sort of ordinary people, unlike the sort of, you know, 
people in the Westminster bubble like us don't look at these photographs and don't really care. What they care about is sort of real things. They care about the health service. You know, the trolleys piling up, doctors saying people are dying needlessly. We've all got a relation, an aunt, an uncle, a son or daughter who's suffering because of the NHS crisis. The one thing that Mrs May could have done in the reshuffle is move the person who's been in charge for the last five or six years, who is probably the most loathed health secretary by the medical professions since John Moore in the 1980s. She decided to move him. He said no. So she said, OK, you can stay and I will give you an, an even bigger title. That's what people really take from this reshuffle. And it yeah. makes her look like she's got a political tin ear because, as Philip said, the stories this week about the health service are just getting worse and worse and worse and Theresa May's having to apologise, Jeremy Hunt's having to apologise. And I think, you know, there's always a tricky relationship between health professionals and the Conservative Party, but it seems to be pretty bad at the moment. She's, in fact, probably made it worse. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And to be honest, I think any Conservative health secretary would have struggled through a period where the health service is getting 1% real terms increases when it's been used to getting 4% real terms increases since it was set up. So I think the relationship was always going to be bad. Although they wouldn't necessarily have picked a fight with the junior doc, which true. is what Jeremy Hunt did. That is and true. that actually is at the root of a lot of his political problems. Yes, and what I'm told about that, that the switch was, it was primarily, the idea, of course, was that Jeremy Hunt at Health was going to be switched with Greg Clark at the Department of Business. The reason for that was they felt, as Philip was saying there, that Jeremy Hunt had become a bit of a liability or at least a sort of a lightning rod for disaffection in the medical profession. And that Greg Clark was frankly doing a good job, was, wasn't a great communicator and was a bit indecisive and a little bit dull. But the idea you would just swap these two ministers over rather than try to think fresh is very odd and have just ended up as a great advertisement of how weak Theresa May is that she wasn't able to move either of them. And the sort of symbol of the reshuffle was probably Justine Greening who's a long-serving cabinet minister who's been transport secretary, international aid secretary and in a way was a symbol of the conservative comeback of the mid-noughties when she won Putney mm. in the 2005 election and she was asked to move from the education secretary brief into work and pensions and refused and then ended up exiting the government which looked pretty bad for Theresa May filler. I think it did, because I think Justin Greening represented, if you like, the sort of modernisation, as you said, of the Tory party under David Cameron after 2005. So she's, you know, reinstalled a number of these grey, some of them balding men. And a woman who has a female partner is sort of gay, who represents sort of modernity and, you know, the sort of London cosmopolitan approach, liberal approach to life, is pushed to one side. And then promptly sits with the Remainers, <laughs> the rebels, as it were, on the Tory backbenchers. Back so, you know, why, why the Prime Minister didn't let Jeremy Hunt go and keep Justin Greening, I really can't understand. Yes. Well, I'm sure you have a good theory on why that might be, George, well, and it's all to do with a newspaper column. Well, indeed, Nick Timothy, Theresa May's former co-chief of Start, wrote, wrote a column in The Telegraph saying that reason Justine Greening was going to be moved and then resigned was because she was an obstruction to well, Theresa May's plans to address the question of high tuition fees. But I think it goes a bit broader than that. I think Justine Greening looks at the proposals to cut tuition fees, which she saw as primarily a subsidy to middle-class families. And she also, of course, famously resisted Theresa May's plans to reintroduce grammar schools. So Justine Greening had a totally different view of how to generate social mobility to Theresa May. She went to a northern comprehensive school, unlike Theresa May, who went to a grammar school. And in the end, she was moved. In the, of course, the reshuffle, of course, we also lost quite a good universities minister, Joe Johnson, who also crossed 
Theresa May. There were a whole load of baffling moves in the reshuffle. Rory Stewart, who actually knew something about foreign policy and was doing a great job in Africa, was moved. I mean, there were some very baffling things. George Osborne, from his seat in the Evening Standard Editor's Chair, said it was a rather an unusual reshuffle. The one thing that I think did broadly go to plan this reshuffle, just to put a slightly <laughs> positive spin on it, was at the junior level that there's a lot of people who are simply not performing in their briefs in below the Secretary of State level. And there was a big clear out of people and a big moving around and crucially gave promotions to people like Sam Gimer, who's a very well thought of rising young minister. Oliver Dowden, who used to work in Downing Street for David Cameron, is now at the Cabinet Office. And then even below that, at the parliamentary undersecretary level, the 2015 intake have had their first representatives with Rishi Sunak, who's an MP from Yorkshire, who's gone into government. Lucy Fraser, a former QC, who's gone into government. So as you were saying, George, it's in a way setting things up almost for the next reshuffle. Although you have to think if this one was so successful, she won't be trying another one anytime in the near future. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, none of these people are, are names that anyone in the real world will have heard of. But I suppose the significance is that they're now on the ministerial ladder. And there's a growing view I pick up from in the cabinet and also on the Tory backbenches that Theresa May actually will now stay on as Prime Minister beyond the summer of 2019, which is what, what people did previously think. They think she might now stay on until the end of the transition period in 2021, which will give these people that she's appointed this week a chance to rise up through the ministerial ranks. I think it's an outside possibility, but I think it's a possibility nevertheless that one of those people could end up challenging to be Prime Minister before a general election in 2022. I think that's so. And it's obviously important to have good people doing these sort of junior ministerial jobs. But it still strikes me as sort of eccentric to worry about the people at the lower rungs, given the series of problems that the government faces. And I think if you go out into the country and ask people what they care about, they probably care about three or four things. They care about Brexit, some of them, not not too many. But Brexit and the economy, put those together, that's probably really important. The health service, clearly, absolutely important, sort of in meltdown. And housing, you know, the fact that people, again, everyone's got a sort of relation, you know, nephew, niece who can't get into an affordable house or is paying too much rent or whatever. Now, if the government, you know, if the prime minister, I think, had shown any leadership, she would have realised that this is where the only hope for this government to do well and to revive is to put its energies into dealing with those things. And messing around with sort of different ministers for paper clips is just really doesn't cut it. I agree with that. And I think there's an, another giveaway in this reshuffle about the lack of ideas in the government on addressing the in addressing the issues Philip's just identified is the way that the nomenclature of the departments has changed. So Jeremy Hunt becomes the minister for health or department secretary of state for health and social care the Department of Communities and Local Government has been rebranded the Ministry of Housing and Local Government. And they made a big play of the fact that this was now a ministry rather than a department, as if anyone in the real world cares. We just had a housing white paper, which didn't really tear up any trees, to be honest. But actually just changing the names of departments is a displacement activity for coming up for, with proper policies that address the issues. And the NHS is an interesting one, because I've heard that Downing Street has been reaching out to MPs and asking, what would you think of a royal commission to look at the NHS, which is the latest idea doing the rounds along with a hypothecation tax which would have a direct link to NHS funding and I think Philip it speaks to the fact that the Conservatives are thinking about ideas of raising taxes or trying to have a big investigation they would be bound to that they acknowledge that but as you said action is still very slow very delayed and you know all these things we're talking months and years all the time the health service is simply getting worse and on housing the answers are really quite clear but the Conservatives won't face up to their sort of their own demons in a way about the Green belt and about building. 
Yes, and the Prime Minister, frankly, won't face down the Treasury on either subject. The government will not, in my view, survive unless it begins to put enough money into the health service to keep it going without these, you know, this is sort of 1990s style crises, without this level of crisis. I think the Royal Commission or some independent, some cross-party mechanism for agreeing long-term funding is important. But we're talking about the next two or three or four years before a general election. Something really does have to be done now. And equally on housing, the real obstacle is the Treasury and the Treasury's refusal to allow housing associations and councils to build sufficient, low, reasonably low-cost housing. And it costs the government enough to borrow. You know, the government doesn't have to effectively pay any interest rates. So this is sensible stuff, but it needs a prime minister willing to focus on priorities rather than, as George says, get sort of caught up in these displacement activities and announce plans on, say, the environment, which about what's going to happen in 25 years' time. I think most people will have watched their television sets this week and thought, the Prime Minister is telling us that we're going to have got rid of plastics from our environment in 25 years' time. What about now? If you've opened a newspaper in recent weeks, you'll have seen some stories about how much Michael Gove loves the environment. Cuddling animals, reintroducing badgers, constructing a new northern forest, making Britain a plastic-free society. These are just some of the announcements that shows the Tories are trying to go green again. What lies behind this? And is this actually going to help them with younger voters? So Laura Hughes, when this began, Downing Street essentially have looked at all the policy areas and thought, what's up for grabs? The health service isn't up for grabs. But the areas that are are education and the environment so in education they are a bit stuck on that front for due to various reasons but on the environment they've seen a clear opening here and they've hit the airways with announcement after announcement after announcement what's behind all this well it's interesting isn't it because if you think back to david cameron and when he came into power there was this big sort of green agenda that actually got a bit lost but proved to be quite popular with the voters and katie perry who used to work for theresa may said this week that actually all these announcements and this big whole document that was published yesterday, the 25-year environment plan, was actually meant to be quite boring. And it's interesting that it's changed. And she didn't suggest that Theresa May isn't sincere in her concern for the environment, but that actually perhaps this is a good tool for winning votes and actually getting young people to be interested in the Conservative Party. And over the week, we've had a series of announcements. So the 5p plastic bag tax, that was a good headline at the moment. It's only compulsory for shops that employ more than 250 people but now it's going to apply to all shops across the country just as as is the case in Wales and Scotland already and that's a good one that's a policy that the figures look really good it's reduced plastic bag usage by up to 80% which is obviously incredibly important and then the big headlines of abolishing all um, avoidable plastic waste by 2020 sorry 2042 which has been criticised a little bit by campaigners because they say actually that's quite a long time So Laura Round if we go back to those halcyon days of Cameron modernisation and when your think tank Bright Blue came into being and one of the big things you've always been about is conservative environmentalism and you've done some reports on this and some polling about how people feel about this. Why was it lost do you think because essentially David Cameron began with his hugger husky going out to going out to the Antarctic and talking about all these things that then rapidly got lost and now it's come back again so what's happened there? I think looking back at David Cameron, a lot of the modernising agenda got overshadowed by the financial crash and the focus was understandably on the economy. I would stress that the environment has always been central to Conservative 
thinking. Stewardship, making sure we pass on the environment in a better state to the next generation is at the heart of the Conservative philosophy. I think it's only since the last general election that the Conservative Party have woken up to the fact that it is actually politically a really smart move. Obviously, politics aside, it's a crucial thing that should be championed. But in the last election, the Conservative Party lost a lot of support among younger voters and voters in more metropolitan areas who tend to be more socially liberal. And Bright Blue's polling shows that if you want to woo younger voters, so voters under 40, climate change and environmental policies are a really good way of doing so. Yes, I think number 10's polling shows shows that too. I guess the question though is on the conservatism point to this, that the argument Theresa May and Michael Gove have made this week when they launched the 25-year report is that there is not a decision to be made about do you prefer economic growth or do you prefer green policies? There's obviously going to be a trade-off there. So if you take renewable energy, for example, and particularly with things like solar, that requires a lot of government subsidy and it can result in high energy bills. And actually Nick Timothy, who's a former chief of staff at Downing Street, was against a lot of things like the climate change act because he saw the cost being unfairly passed on to consumer so there might not be a direct blockage between conservative environmentalism but there are tensions yeah that's an argument that that has been made although bright blue has been saying that actually if you invest more into in sustainable uh, and renewable energy in the long run actually that can be very advantageous to the economy there's more jobs and it would also lead to lower energy costs yes it is probably a long-term investment but it's one that needs to be made law hughes the Real question, I suppose, is how much of this is just about winning votes? Because you hinted that earlier that this was a really good way to appeal to those people that Conservatives are desperately lacking in their voting coalition. But you have to wonder, is this all just to try and get nice headlines and pictures of badges on the six o'clock news? Or is it actually a change in what the party thinks and feels about green issues? I hate to be cynical, but I, I do think it is a bit of a vote winner. And I think if you look at the detail, there isn't a lot of kind of new legal action that the government announced this week. So yes, they've said to supermarkets who can get the first plastic-free aisle. But there's no real kind of government incentive. There's no punishment for not doing it. It's more of a good PR sort of stunt or an actually environmentally friendly thing for supermarkets to do. Yes, I think they've woken up to the fact that it's politically advantageous. But this government has actually done some positive things around the environment, um, especially on coal phase-out. But the change is that that wasn't promoted when they made those announcements. Whereas now, with every single, even if it's a minor one, it's in the newspapers. And Gove's obviously done a very good job at pushing that. And we obviously have to talk about Michael Gove's role in this, that, you know, he sees himself as a sort of almost Marxist minister that he likes to go in and break up departments and smash up civil services' briefs and really get things done. And clearly, when he made a surprise return to the cabinet, Laura Hughes, he went into environment and saw a couple of kind of key policy areas he could make a difference and has really gone for that. It's been quite remarkable to watch the transformation. Yeah, but also I think you should remember is that we were expecting Theresa May to really put some emphasis on her domestic agenda she doesn't want to be remembered as the Brexit Prime Minister and it's convenient no, she will though no, she will and Michael Gove is in that role and has that brief and I think as we saw with his role you know when his time as Education Secretary he does get very ideologically involved and he does get very passionate about it but it's also slightly fortunate timing that Theresa May's thinking right what can I say how can I distract what's going to sound new and impressive and Michael Gove happens to have that brief I suppose then really the question Laura around finally is 
for Theresa May for this to be a success, they really have to start picking up those votes from other different parts of the country. So in London, in cities, places where green issues tend to rank much higher on people's voting intentions. You know, we've got the London elections coming up in May. They're thought to be somewhat of a car crash for the Conservatives because they're going to be punished probably by a lot of people who like what Labour has to say. At which point can we look back and say this was a successful policy, this was the right thing to do? Well, I think the policies that uh, the Conservative Party would be wise to adopt and the government would be to adopt, and especially in the run-up to the next elections, are, and this is what Bright Blue polling shows, is that when you ask under 40s, uh, voters who are under 40 what policies would make you proud to vote for a political party, by the way, all the top three were environmental. So again, it shows the importance of, of this, this topic. But banning ivory trade scored very highly, and obviously government is doing that. Renewable energy wind and solar so that would be something that I think would be wise for the government to adopt and especially in London and other metropolitan areas although it's not just metropolitan areas but air pollution is a huge issue. Yeah. And finally, Laura Hughes, this is in some ways trying to recant for an error that was in the manifesto, you could say, a tactical error about fox hunting and a free <laughs> vote that for quite some time the Conservatives have had that as a policy. David Cameron just dodged it at every possible opportunity because of the haphazard way the manifesto was pushed together in last year's snap election. The vote weighed it back in there and Momentum and Labour weaponised this to a great extent on social media and said, you know, this is proof the Tories are the nasty party again and again sort of come back to early do you think those memories can die before the next general election i think they're gonna have a real issue trying to kill off those issues the fox hunting one is very emotive and made the headlines and it's not surprising that Theresa may has rode back on that although she has had to sort of continue to say it is still her personal belief that she is in favor of it but you know social media that's been another thing everyone's been talking about this week and yes the tories are trying to rebrand their social media image and when these stories do the most damage is when they're shared by labor supporters and Momentum supporters on Facebook and on Twitter. But even if the Conservatives try and send out a different message, we saw that when Blue Parent was being aired, we suddenly saw, you know, lots of Tory MPs tweeting out about it. The issue still is that a lot of social media sharing is peer-to-peer. In order for the government to get down to the people that might not necessarily vote for them, they're going to have to think of inventive ways of getting Labour supporters and young people to share their message on social media. And that's back to the age-old question that Tories need to try and find a way for them to become relevant. Twitter, Facebook, without a huge grassroots. That's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Philip, Laura and Laura for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. Don't forget to subscribe so you can receive FT Politics straight to your phone, tablet or computer every week. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.